Hello and welcome to Diminishing Returns. For the next two weeks, we'll be focusing on the many different elements of the Planet of the Apes series, starting today by looking at the original series of five films that were released in the 60s and 70s. From revolutionary prosthetic makeup design to revolutionary ape analogies, there is a lot to get into here, and it's a fascinating journey into the nascent blockbuster era where Hollywood started to learn the value of a franchise mentality. This episode contains spoilers for The Planet of the Apes, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, Stop the Planet of the Apes, I Want to Get Off, and The Dark Knight Rises. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to Diminishing Returns, the podcast where we look at film franchises and then pitch our own ideas for sequels, and along the way we dissect and deconstruct everything about them. I'm Alan, I'm here, as always, with Sol. Hello. And Calvin. No! (laughs) Oh no, sorry, that's not Calvin, that's (laughs) Calvin the Chimp. (laughs) Hello. This week we're doing part one of our Planet of the Apes two-parter. And in this episode, we'll be focusing on the old school Planet of the Apes, the 60s and Mm. 70s. And then next week, we'll take a quick look at Tim Burton's version and then the new film series, which is leading to the new film that's coming out, which is called something like A War War on the Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes. Yeah, that's it. Uh, So this week, we're looking at the original franchise, which consists of five films a TV series and an animated TV series. Mm, uh, yeah. We'll see how far we get into that because I haven't seen <laughs> the TV shows. But, um, so now I know for a fact that Sol considers Planet of the Apes to be in his top ten best ever films. So do you want to start with this, Sol? Sol, is there a way that I can see your top ten best films? Is there like a <laughs> list available somewhere that you can point me in the direction of? Yeah, there, there is actually on on the new Diminishing Returns website, dimreturns.com. Uh, oh my. You can see a ranking of every episode we've discussed on the show, actually, according to our ratings. And and if you go there, you can also click a link and you'll see my top 100 films. Very oh, exciting. And if you do that, you'll see that it's it's actually not in my top 10 anymore. <gasps> uh, Controversial. It, it used... <laughs> well, it was. It used, is, it, is this because of Minions? Did Minions push it down? <laughs> it did. It, Minions, min, Minions was so good. <laughs> that, um, I put minions in like eight times, and that just pushed it out. Well, when we did our t- our episode looking at Tim Burton's career, which was maybe six months ago, uh, still available mm. on dimreturns.com, we uh, you mentioned it then, obviously in relation to. Oh, Tim did Burton. I? Oh, well, I was just I was talking out of line. It used to be one of my top ten films, but I I had a look at the list. Um, and did you rewatch it for this uh, podcast? How yeah. often do you go back to it? Well, this is it. it, it, it I, I rewatched it last night actually, uh, but that's ah. the first time I've watched it in a long, long time. Did ah. it did it hold up? For the most part, yeah. Uh, the the third act got a bit slow at one point, which is why yeah. I actually dropped it from fifteen to sixteen last night. But, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so specific. What's what's fifteen then? What did what what jumped ahead of it because of a slow third act? 
the film that jumped ahead was the director's cut of the 1986 <laughs> Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Very good. Fair enough. <laughs> But no, I mean, I, I do think it is a a phenomenal, phenomenal film, and I I think it's it that film and the producers that both came out in the same year, I believe, nineteen sixty eight. They for me represent almost the dawn of uh, modern cinema, to be perfectly honest. Mm. Because Planet of the Apes and and the producers, those are two of the very first films that I can just sit back and watch as pure entertainment without having to run them through a a sort of context filter in my head. I love loads of old films from the 20s and 30s and 40s, but I generally have to switch gears a little bit when I'm watching them and just kind of adjust my headspace for the time, if you know what I mean. And I, I mm. don't really have to do that for Planet of the Apes. That's here. interesting, because I, I thought Planet of the Apes is hugely dependent on its context, because it's all about Cold War and stuff like that, and, and civil rights issues. Well, they're, they're more relevant than ever today, Alan. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, don't, I think it depends on who you talk to. Like, if you would talk to, like, the director or Charlton Heston, they would have said, oh, yes, no, it's a film about civil rights and all that kind of stuff. And then um, when you talk to the producer, Richard D. Zanuck, he was just like, actually, I was just making a, a fun adventure <laughs> film. Like, I, did, I wasn't actually thinking about any of that. I'm, like, my first and foremost concern was, is it entertaining or but, not? But this is exactly it. For me, when I say it works as just solid entertainment, I'm referring purely mm. to the fun adventure film side of it and obviously there's a subtext and you can read further into it and it adds to what you're getting out of it but it's one of the earliest films i can think of that i can just sit back and watch on a purely entertainment level like a modern blockbuster i thought when watching these i it feels its age it's like this feels like they're still trying to work out what a blockbuster is like it is i agree with that to an extent Rewatching it last night, it did feel like it felt like it was shot in a really arty way for a big blockbuster, and it basically felt like, yeah, right. oh yeah, yeah, Star Wars hasn't been made yet. They haven't quite figured out what blockbuster filmmaking is. Well, bear in mind that before this, the sci-fi was basically either low budget, them, um, the thing from another world, or it was two thousand and one, which had come out not too long before. No, this. no, two thousand one would be nineteen sixty nine, isn't it? It came after this. Yeah, I think so. Nineteen sixty nine, two thousand one, I think it was. No way. 1968. Oh, some of them were filmed around the same time. Wow. 2000. Yeah, yeah there's two months in it. Huh. But yeah, you are talking specifically about cinematic film science fiction. And yes. that leads me on to uh, The Twilight Zone. Oh, which... you know who wrote the script for Planet of the Apes, don't yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's where I'm going. One of the reasons I, I love Planet of the Apes is because. To me, it might as well just be the Twilight Zone movie. It is a feature-length episode of the Twilight Zone. It was written by Rod Serling, who is the you know the master behind that series, who wrote many, many, many of the episodes and show ran it and presented each episode himself. Everything about it, it the tone, the structure, down to the twist ending, the ironic twist that comments on you know, the state of current affairs and what have you. Everything about it plays out like a feature-length episode of The Twilight Zone. Mm. Well, it's interesting you say about this kind of the modern age and all that, because for me, what really felt out of place here was Charlton Heston. 
Yeah. And yeah. he is old school <laughs> Hollywood. And he just does not fit in this film, does he? And I not agree, to say yeah. that it's a bad performance. We talked about him in Ben Hur. Episode's still available. Shout. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty <laughs> ape. Uh, yeah, so it's 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 really like old school. It works in Ben Hur, and we talked about him in our episode on Ben Hur that Charlton Heston just has that that power, that kind of magnificence that great Hollywood mm. film stars have. But it doesn't work in this context, and mm. and also mm. partly the character. I, th- I don't like mm. the character, and I'm not sure how deliberate that is. Yeah, I mean, I- I'm surprised you don't like him, Alan. He's a, he's a nihilist. He's a <laughs> he's left Earth and he's sick of it. But he's also yeah. a complete asshole. Yeah, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. you know what I don't like yeah. about him is just like he's just a bit thick, isn't he? Like, there's so many points when. <laughs> when he could easily, like, shake his head or just sort of wave his hand and communicate that way and, like, indicate that he understands what's being said, but he just chooses to stand there with his movie star glower looking at the <laughs> the the other apes. And Well, if you... Let's, I want to start at the beginning because there's... You, we see him crash land and all that, and... You see him at the start, he picks out a cigar and just pops it in his mouth. But, <laughs> but he doesn't... He doesn't light it, does he? Is that when they're in the spaceship or when they're adrift in the desert? When they're in the spaceship. <laughs> yeah, he can't. He picks he picks up a cigar and I assumed like, oh wow, the sixties, he's just having a s he's just having a cigar on a spaceship. But then he like puts it in his pocket and I thought, okay, he so he's it. he's saving it for later for when they land. Fair enough. But then why <laughs> is that what they did in the sixties? You just pop it in your mouth and like hold it there like a Yeah, you get a savor it, a bit of the flavour. <laughs> smell it a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but that's that was another thing. He, he gets it out later when they're in the desert, they're dying of thirst. He was like, "Oh, fancy a cigar? That'll help." Just when you <laughs> when you're thirsty, that's what you want, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, anyway, so they they crash land and they and they they have to jump out and they just grab what they can. So they've got these backpacks with these emergency provisions. And what have they got, right? Maybe some food, like a, some all-purpose tools, like a machete, fire lighters, that sort of thing that would come in handy in any environment. No, a gun. Which I don't know what good that's going to do, yeah? And a Geiger counter, so they can go, yep, we're going to get radiated here. Great. Because <laughs> they, they've not got spacesuits on, so it doesn't make any difference. Yeah, Why but take this, a Geiger this, counter? This, this, this film came out the same year that another film came out where it alluded to radiation being the cause of bringing the dead back to life and like <laughs> eating human flesh. Like I don't think they really had a a grasp on what radiation was <laughs> at the time. But the thing, and I appreciate that like, this isn't what the film was about and it's just the setup, and so you just have to let go with it. But it just really annoyed me that these guys had no... Like, I don't know what the mission is. It, it did like, remind me no of um, Prometheus, got... an alien covenant, <laughs> all over again. But... That's totally what it is. It's supposed to be that these guys are supposed to be going and finding new worlds and populating them. The problem with this is there only seems to be four people on the ship, and only one of them is a woman. <laughs> yeah. So you've, and, you've and, and, it, and when she dies, they're not there. even like they're not even like oh fuck that's you know that's the mission over then. Just well, I always forget that she's even in this. When at the beginning, I'm always quite no, stunned. Let's presume, yeah. presuming she had lived and they started having babies, what would they eat? Where would they live? The chances of them finding a planet <laughs> with breathable atmosphere and, and Were their babies to eat, meant to, to just, like, shag each other? I mean, they'd be half siblings, <laughs> I guess. But still, it's not a, it's not a good start for a breeding population, is it? 
Mm, mm. But but they're in the future, Alan. It's it's future science, <laughs> so they're probably going to like artificially mess around with the DNA of the children and just like use <laughs> oh, her yeah. as an oven to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not. This is the thing, right? I'm no Ray Mears, okay? But even I know some things about survival, and I know if I crash landed in on a river. In a raft, you're in a raft. Stay in the raft and follow the river until you find civilization. Civilization goes to water because it's what is it a river? provides life. Well, it doesn't matter what it is. I thought if it was a lake. Body of water. Yeah, but I no, no, they're floating lake. along. You can have lakes with. I'm sure they no say it's a big living lake. Near it. Well, <laughs> well, whatever. It is. I'm sure anyway, they say it's a big but lake. But they, just... they allude to some. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Whatever. I don't think it's fully explained. <laughs> but they just get out, and he goes, "Right, where shall we go?" And he goes that way. And he goes, any, any reason? And he goes, no reason whatsoever. Smoke my cigar. <laughs> and, then, and then they just wander into the desert, like with no provisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just... yeah. Well, what would you do, Alan? Would you, would you sit in the spaceship as it goes down, like Will Smith with a broken leg, and get Jaden <laughs> to go and save you? <laughs> no, but I know what you mean, Alan. It is. I don't know if I if it, I find a harder time sort of grasping with it because of Taylor, the character, because he is such a downbeat <laughs> pessimist, and he's really uh, he d- he doesn't really want to be there. He he talks in his opening monologue how he hates Earth and people are terrible and yeah. you know that's why he's going to find another place so it's it's hard to follow someone like that it's shot nicely isn't it oh beautiful yeah. i never really picked up on that when i was younger but watching it last night i was struck by how um, pleasant it was to just sit back and watch all the like big landscape shots and there's a lot of long mm. sequences I, I assumed it had come out just after 2001 a space odyssey it's interesting to hear that they were being mm. filmed at the same time cuz yeah, it know, feels right? like it's taken in influence from that film. Totally, like the opening crash, yeah. like when they, it's all filmed from like the perspective of the yeah, spaceship. Yeah. And I was, I was thinking, oh, well, they just took this from two thousand and one. I think it might just be uh, cheaper to do it, <laughs> do a POV oh, shot yes, than yes. Uh, show a spaceship crashing. <laughs> they do talk about that on one of the bonus features. Someone <laughs> they interview someone and say, yeah, we just had to save costs. Yeah. So. But they dwell on but, it. I mean, that's, like, that's going to become a big part in the sequel. You see the camera come all the way down. It's not like you know yeah, a few seconds yeah. of it and out. It it's very deliberately paced. Mm, mm. Mm. Anyway, they um they find a, a watering hole and immediately strip off. There is a lot of Charlton Heston buttocks in this, isn't there? <laughs> there is an awful lot. <laughs> it's the future, then, then, you know, notions of modesty are, are gone. They're no more. No one but, cares. But Charl- <laughs> what Charlton Heston didn't know was the director and the other actors had decided that they were all gay. Uh, and they just didn't tell him. <laughs> oh, it's been her all over again. See, that's the thing. Like when you get to the bonus material and the interviews with him, and he's talking about all the civil rights stuff, and he's like, "Oh yes, we knew what we were doing and all this kind of stuff." And I'm like, "How much did you really know? Because you didn't know that Ben Hur was like this big gay <laughs> analogy thing." So I, I, I'm not sure I believe you, Charlton. Yep. So they're naked, and then they find other humans on the planet. Other humans steal their clothes, don't they? Yeah. So they have to yeah. stay a bit naked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and run after well, them. It's it's quite an in- ingenious way altogether to get them rid of these f- the future clothes because then when they're taken into captivity they're not spotted as being mm. abnormal straight away. Well, they they are. Um, they literally say this one's wearing weird clothes. Where did he get? These oh, did they? Clothes? Yeah, yeah. Is it, it, oh, I mean, right. so it's just oh, like his pants, but they do specifically say like, <laughs> what? Have you, what? So what's the deal with this one? Oh, we found him wearing these really weird futuristic clothes. <laughs> 
<laughs> and of course, he gets he gets shot in the throat, just badly enough to stop him speaking. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, around around this point is where we f- have our first we see our first ape, which is a gorilla on horseback, and there's this whole sequence where the uh, gorillas are like rounding up the humans and capturing them. I did make a note here that that was half an hour in when we see the yeah. apes. I, mm, I would mm. I would love to have seen this film without the knowledge that I have mm. of it now. Because that... Mm. I mean, I don't know how it was marketed in the 60s. I'm sure everyone knew it was about actual ape people with fancy ape makeup when they went to see it. It must have been. Must have but been. It, it must have feels, been in the trailer or something. But it feels structured in a way that you're meant to go to see it, think that perhaps those feral humans running around are the apes, and then there's this kind mm. of crash zoom when an ape comes in, and you see Yeah, it's like a reveal shot, time. isn't it? Yeah. Mm. But that that whole sequence is really effective and quite scary. Yeah. Like, that, like, zoom in on the gorilla when you first see it is kind of mm. like, oh, whoa, okay. It does an amazing job of injecting a rubber Halloween mask thing with, like, genuine menace, doesn't it? It, it, it mm. is very well constructed. This is kind of where I wanted to get on to, because I think this is probably a good point for us to talk about the makeup yeah. effects in general. Yeah. Um, I think they're astonishingly good for the time. Incredible, yeah. Absolutely. Right, Astoundingly yeah. Astoundingly good. I mean, obviously yeah. they they are dated by today's standards. They don't hold up as well as they might, but they mm. they hold up pretty well, all things considered. Yeah. it's it's It struck me as it's one of those weird things where you can see it's not real and they're not real and, and you can tell mm. that it's a mask, but there's it's done mm. in a certain way that gives you a suspension of disbelief that you can yeah. go along with, even today. Yeah. Which, yeah. And I don't know where that line is or what that magic ingredient is, but it's like, it's like when you might watch something of like... Um, an American werewolf in London or something, you mm. see him turning into a werewolf. You can see mm. how it's done, you can understand how they're doing it, but you still buy into it. I know completely what you mean. It's like when I'm watching, like I know Roddy McDowell, I've seen him in plenty of films, but when I see him as Cornelius, I'm not even thinking of him underneath the yeah. makeup. It's weird, I just buy it as, oh right, yep, yeah, that's Cornelius the, the chimpanzee. It works really well that you've got the eyes, that's really expressive mm. eyes, but they're compl- they are, it doesn't mm. look like a mask in front of the eyes, it's completely mm. blended in. That works yeah. really nicely. But yeah, I think we're all agreed that the makeup effects are really fantastic. and Yeah. yeah, Especially for the time. Probably even be- better in here than in the sequels where they get kind of... I was sweaty. about to say, like, you only have to compare them to the subsequent films to see how good a job they did. Because yeah. it, it does go very downhill. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, should, we, should we talk more about along the film lines? Because I mean, one of the only places where the makeup effects are let down for me is when Roddy McDowell's Cornelius has to kiss his wife. I think part of it is because of the sound, because it just just sound like coconuts like going together. It's like, <laughs> and it's like there's no. It's because the, the lips can't purse. <laughs> I'm jumping ahead in the plot here, but why does Charlton Heston kiss her at the end? Because um, she's a sexy monkey. He was just such a like manly man that you just thought, I'm not, I'm not going to turn down a chance to snog an ape. <laughs> I think they had, I like, think they had genuine chemistry, and I, I like that the film, like Zira's a married lady, like she has a husband, and I like that she still has this sort of flirty relationship with Taylor. But I, I love Zira as a character, and I think we'll probably talk about more about her in Escape from Planet mm. of the Apes. And the way and I, Kim Hunter's performance is fantastic, and there's a oh, yeah, there's brilliant. like there's a sparkle in her eyes, obviously, but. Just little, she's always like giving little winks and little curl of the nose and things like that. It gives it so much mm. personality, uh, and yeah. it gives her character real spark. And 
Mm. But also, she's the beating heart of the, the story, really. She's the... Totally. She's the empathetic one. Yeah, totally. Because it's like her, you know, she's the um, the uh, rambunctious, uh, more action orientated one out of the two of them. Because Cornelius is more, um, he's more willing, milk toast. He's more willing to just fade into the background and let's just keep on with our work. Don't cause any trouble mm. and all that kind of stuff. Whereas Zira is the real activist. Is he your favorite character? Can't. Me? No, no, I really like Zira. Zira's yeah. my favorite character. Uh, oh, yeah, you like strong women who can dominate you, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Especially when they say, get me a leash. I'm like, oh, oh, Zira. Put that leash on me. Uh, Anyway, Alan, I believe you wanted to talk more about the the hidden meanings in the film. Um, Yeah, well, I mean, some of the analogies that they're trying to make are obviously the element of civil rights. But I'm not quite sure how any how how well all that comes across, and it goes for all of mm. these films. It feels like all these films are trying to make a point, but they get a bit lost in also mm. trying to create entertainment. Do you think it falls down because the ape system, like the way they live, is incredibly segregated? Itself? Yeah, I mean, it's like gorillas system, are one it? thing, yeah. orangutans are I think this is partly to do with the adapting the the book it's based on to screen. Mm. I haven't read the original book because it's, it's uh, French. French, yeah, I yeah. Don't know how readily readily available. I'm sure it has been translated many times, but mm. I, it's not the most readily available book. But my understanding is that it's very different, and one of the key differences is that the ape society is depicted in a, a very different way. And it's more of a utopian, advanced sci-fi mm. future that the apes live in. Mm. But they turned it into this very like old-school, living-in-mud-huts kind of society purely because the film's budget yeah. would be able to accommodate that a lot more easily and it would be easier for them to film. So I do wonder how much of that is just them trying to make the film more viable from a financial point of view. Mm. I don't think there's any religion that the apes live by, for example, which is obviously a huge part of the film. They they go on about these ancient scrolls and things. Mm. So there's yeah, I was just about, a lot I was going to talk about that actually because when I was trying to figure out what's the meaning behind it all, it does feel like there's a real religion versus science thing here because you've mm. got. First of all, this ape society is um, it has a certain scientific development, and the chimpanzees are at the sort of forefront of that. But they're disciplined by religion, and that is the well, essentially the, the orangutan spiritual leaders. And and when something comes along to to threaten it, those leaders try to hide it. And now that's fine, like a, a message that says religion is trying to squash intellectual development and squash the, uh, new information. I can go with that. But the ending seems to suggest that that's a good thing. For the greater good of society, uh, I don't know if it is. No, I mean, dis- I mean, upsetting, yes. And if you're not yeah. prepared to handle it, then I mean, we only see. I mean, obviously, the very end of the film is when he discovers the Statue of Liberty and the the planet he's on was Earth all along. My point is that at the end, Doctor Zayas essentially goes, "Right, we're covering this up. Blow up the evidence." You two are going to get tried for heresy. That, and, and he makes that decision knowing that he's covering up something that is true. Because he thinks that for the greater good of ape society, that is what needs to be done. And then, yeah. to affirm that, Charlton Heston runs along. He sees the Statue of Liberty. He says, damn, it was Earth all along. He says, you finally did it. You blew it up. Yeah, they blew it up with a bomb. Scientific advancement creates the bomb. That blows it up. His last words, literally the last words of the film are, God damn you all to hell. That hmm. is an affirmation of religion over science. Science has destroyed the earth. 
with nuclear bomb. And now the ape religious society uh, is running along smoothly until science comes hmm. along to it. I don't know if it is, though. I, I, You don't get the sense... Like, Dr. Zaius is the film's villain. I don't feel like it really... Yeah, and at the end, what is his comeuppance? ...goes out of its way to make him a redeemed hero at the end. It doesn't seem like that. But it's not, exactly. That's what like I mean. the He's, villain's winning. Yeah, the villain wins. That's, but that we see him as a villain. But ultimately, we, we he creates a, a, a moral grey area because like, he understands that the evidence is there. And he, he could go, right, there's stuff we don't know here, we need to investigate it, and perhaps there is things we, just, we don't understand. But instead he goes, there are things we don't understand, and... It's gonna throw our society to chaos, so I'm gonna hide it. But you can just read—you can read all of that as being an extension of the um, "don't fuck around with nuclear bombs" <laughs> narrative. Because you could just read it as like, "Hey, look, look how bad this is! Like, this new society won't even touch science. That's how shit it'll be if if you end up blowing up Earth." I, I don't think it's necessarily meant to be a comment against technological advancement at all as so much as just a, a kind of anti-nuclear let's all be kind to each other try and get along kind of rhetoric really by covering up facts <laughs> and that's what that... no because that it's it's not real. i don't think it's particularly concerned with ape society i think it's meant to be a comment on our society that has led to that happening in the world of the film yeah, but as you subconsciously make bigger points when you do that. If you're mm. saying, if you're saying, look, science has gone yeah, too far. They've maybe. created this bomb. And people are using it for evil. I don't know. I I really don't. Th- like, I mean, like I say, it, it, these are all themes that Rod Serling dealt with time and time again in the Twilight Zone, and it, it that was definitely not a um, an anti-science or an anti-progress show. It was a show that preached of being careful and being aware of ironic fates that we, could befall you. At the same time, this is not this is this science. is a Rod Serling script that was then taken and rewritten by somebody else. Uh, so you, it's not his product. True, but I, I'm pretty sure the twist ending is his doing altogether. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you but have yeah, to create right. the same I mean, meaning behind it. And it's just the f- and like so. the fact that Dr. Zayas himself is portrayed as a... And what I actually liked about the character is that he is portrayed... He's not just the bad guy. He's someone who's like, well, yeah, I need to do this for the greater good. And I think he mm. is portrayed as an empathetic character. Like when he talks to Charlton Heston alone, he brings him into his office and, he's, and he says to him, look, I know... I think you're from a tribe of intelligent humans and I need to know where they are because they're going to cause trouble. Mm. You understand where he's coming from and why he's doing what he does? I mean, it's not saying, it's not even saying that, you know, I mean, religion is just the, um, not scapegoat, the, well, kind of in a way. I mean, that's just the tool that Zaius is using to, you know, maintain the status quo. I don't think that the end of the film is saying there is a God or there is a, Oh no no! I, I, I don't. I, when I when I say religion, I mean the the organized function of religion, not a reali- realistic spiritual belief. Yeah, it, it's it's quite clearly an anti-Christian rhetoric because it comes down hard and fast on the idea that evolution is a real thing. So <laughs> you've you've got that off the bat, but mm. yeah. Can I just ask, because uh, we've talked about the meaning of the ending, one of the big classic twists. I, I, that's another thing, actually, just to go off on a quick tangent, that, I, again, what I was talking about before, how I wish I could yeah. watch this film without modern 
pop oh, yeah. culture. Like I, I, I don't know about you, but I've never, never seen this film without knowing from the start that it's Earth, and I don't yeah. think anyone of our age has ever really had. Well, that the, the box set that I had is literally got the image of Statue of Liberty on the front of the box. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Come on, give yeah. me a chance. Yeah, same on my DVD front cover. <laughs> they just don't even try and hide it. Yeah, I, I do wonder how much of a gut punch that would have been, or if it would have been something where you kind of sew it together. I, I can't really tell when I watch it. I, I feel like it was fairly obvious, but. But you already kind know, of a slow, yeah. slow burn. They were kind of sowing the seeds and hoping you'd get there, and then it would just be. But just narratively, is it satisfying? Because like watching it again, like this film was obviously just planned as a one-off thing. Sequels weren't planned beforehand. There's so much left up in the air at the end. I mean, Doctor Zaius doesn't get his comeuppance. Zira and Cornelius are being taken away. They're going to be held. But it's an ending purely based on twist. Like, if there wasn't that twist at the end, would you have been happy with just Charlton Heston riding off yeah, into the sunset? I, I think, I, I think genuinely, if he just rode off into the sunset and that was it, I think it would work almost as well. But it's just got yeah. a great little fun twist to play off of, and it does feel very abrupt because of that twist. And then you know, cut to end credits. But. Hmm. I think structurally it all works. Like, uh, it, it, it is quite, you know, I'll admit it's quite a downbeat ending. Completely downbeat. Uh, even without, even without the twist. But even what, if it, what is, you know, what what is the emotional journey? Who is who has the, who changes? Because John Heston, he starts out nihilistic and downbeat. He finishes even more nihilistic and downbeat. I'm not yeah. sure quite what he's learned. Call Cornelius <laughs> and Zira. Are, I, I, Cornelius is a bit more balls by the end of it. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's probably zero. I don't know, actually. I just, I don't know uh, where the emotional resonance ends, like, the emotional journey. And that's why I think the ending kind of feels um, inconclusive. Like, it's a brilliant twist, it's a very good twist, but I think we're supposed to forget about, we're supposed to be very forgiving of narrative shortcomings on the basis of that fantastic twist. Jerry Goldsmith's music's pretty good, isn't it? Oh, brilliant. Yeah, really, really good. Very odd. Like, it's a mix of sort of traditional orchestra sort of fare, but then there's a lot of, um, like, really peculiar percussion in there, isn't there? And just like... Yeah, it adds to what we were saying about how it really does feel a bit more arty and individual than mm. your average blockbuster. It's yeah. just not the kind of music you'd expect in a big film of this this nature. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's you, you've got to create music that is otherworldly because it's supposed to be a different mm. culture. And so you've got to come up with something new. And presumably yeah. something quite primitive, like percussion is the most primitive music, isn't it? So it's it makes sense. Mm. Yeah, it's good. It's really, really well. As well as feeling like the Twilight Zone, it also feels a bit like Star Trek at times, doesn't it? Mm. This film. Oh yeah, like they've landed yeah. on a. a... <laughs> now, if he'd if he'd shagged Zero, then it would have definitely felt like. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, he still, you know, he's, he gets a snog in, and like I said, those fight scenes—they're so like Shatner, yes. just karate. Oh, yeah, chopping yeah that felt very thing, outdated. So. Actually, the fight scenes because it did feel. Yeah. Yeah, it's just not edited in the same way that we would see it now. It's all <laughs> quicker edits mm. and stuff. Well, this is um, funny because it's Charlton Heston running around in a sack, like karate chopping <laughs> apes on the neck, and then, yeah. Bless him, he does take it really seriously, though. It's a madhouse! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You need that sincerity to carry it, though, I think, because it could so easily seem oh, yeah. silly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
So, obviously, the first film was a huge success, and I think we touched on this a bit in our Jaws episode, which is available on our website, which we mentioned earlier, that this was, Hollywood was in very early, you know, it wasn't really thinking about sequels and franchises necessarily, beyond uh, movie serials, like you had your Fu Manchus and your Sherlock Holmes and your James Bond or whatever, where it was one hero in a different adventure every time, but true sequels didn't really exist until Planet of the Apes sort of set a lot of um, precedent for that because it was so marketable and they could build a whole franchise out of it. They could put them on cereal boxes and all that. So the first film is, uh, the second film rather, is just kind of the same thing again for the first 40 minutes, I would say. Well, the first 10 minutes is literally the end of the first film. It's just, they just play play the same footage. (laughs) Yeah, because it does pick up like immediately where we left off, and we do pick up with Charlton Heston and Nova, but then Charlton Heston is quickly out of the picture, and we have this new shorter Charlton Heston, <laughs> James James Franciscus, I yeah. think his name is how you pronounce it, who's Brent, who's another astronaut who crashed on the planet. My memory of Beneath the Planet of the Apes is that it goes in some really weird new directions. Oh, and I, takes yes. some real left turns that end. I wasn't expecting. Yeah, maybe the last half hour, but the first like the first hour is just they're just repeating all the beats with this new astronaut who looks a lot like Charlton Heston, and he's just you know we have that moment where he sees the apes and he has the oh my god it's a city of apes. They it's... finally get him go. He goes underground and they find this other civilization. And ultimately meets Charlton Heston, mm. so that's where it really comes sort of comes to life. But anyway, then he goes into this this underground sort of world, and from that point on, it's never quite clear what the hell is happening, who they are, no. why they're doing <laughs> what they're doing, why they're torturing him. <laughs> they're um they're mutants uh, because the 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 place where they are now it's New York. New York is under the ground, and rock has like grown over it so there's still all the landmarks there and you know subway and the library and whatnot and apparently because humans have been radiated they now have no sort of skin so they wear these fake like masks um and they're telepathic and they don't talk because that's a primitive way of communication they just like zoom 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 and that's like how they (laughs) communicate now and torture people and they worship a an unexploded nuclear bomb yes yes Yes. yes, in a ve- and again, when you say not not much subtlety, the in the, the analogy here of worshiping the bomb is very uh, well, very direct, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's interesting to talk about the creative team behind this one because the producer Arthur P. Jacobs was the same, and the studio executive Richard D. Zanuck was the same. But for uh, writing, they got in a guy called Paul Den, who wrote, co-wrote Goldfinger. And I think the mentality behind it was, okay, well, he did Goldfinger. That was a third film in a series. Let's just get him in and he can do our sequel as well. And then they got a different director in. Um, but I, I just bring up Paul Den because he is the, um, well, he's certainly credited with story on all of these ape sequels. So he was really given free reign to make the franchise his own. But but here here is probably not doing as good a job as Rod Serling did and the other guy. Uh, it just it just doesn't work. Yeah. And and like there's so much about it that doesn't get explained, which it could easily have gotten there quicker and then spent more time with that. Like the yeah. Hu- yeah. the human civilization. Why do they wear masks? The masks that make them look well. I know why. So they can have that moment where they pull them off and it's like, oh my god, they're mutants. But yeah, in yeah. real terms, like why would they do that? The telepathy mm. thing. 
that they make them fight each other because they don't mm. believe in killing, and so they make just make well, them they, kill they each other. They need to have some kind of mutant power because <laughs> otherwise he's just found some humans and it's a bit boring. Well, that could that well that, if he'd found some humans, that might have been interesting, and then there would have been some sort of human ape war. Yeah, but mm. that's that's it. You just humans with psychic powers. It's just an extra flavor, isn't it? It's more interesting. <laughs> and otherwise, how would we get like Charlton Heston fighting his mate? They have to like psychically yeah. control them to make them fight. Um, <laughs> I, I really feel I feel like Beneath the Planet of the Apes is a really interesting film. It's a film that sets up some really great pieces to play with, and then it just doesn't really do a very good job of mm. of making them all work together. Mm. It's never quite the sum of its parts. I did like the ending in which Charlton Heston yeah. is trying to stop them set off a bomb, but then just sort of takes a look around at the madness and goes, fuck them, and decides to destroy <laughs> the world. <laughs> because yeah. it just seems, because he decides that that's the best thing for it, is to destroy Earth. I do find it amazing that they like went ahead with that ending. Well, literally, Not the really. end of the world ending. It's fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's like again it's it's what you were saying they just didn't have a franchise mentality yet no. it was one film at a time and they'd figure out what to do with the next one well, afterwards do you and, know how the ending came about uh it's um, uh, didn't it, Charlton heston basically like he wanted himself he wanted it written so that they couldn't ask him to come and do <laughs> any more films well it depends who you ask if you if you ask Charlton heston while he was alive he would say yeah it was me, it was my decision because i like he's he's hardly in this film at all he wanted his character to be killed off at the start but the executives at 20th Century Fox are like, no, come on, we need you in this film, we need you in the ending. Can we just have you d- disappear at the beginning and then come back at the end? So he was like, fine, yeah. And then he says that it was his idea to blow up the planet because his ment- his idea was, oh, well, no more sequels then. They're <laughs> never going to ask me back. But if you um, ask sort of historians and people who studied the history of the franchise, there was a guy who I mentioned earlier, Richard D. Zanuck, who was um, one of the heads at 20th Century Fox. And his dad, another Zanuck, was the proper head of the studio. And um, it, he was sort of being seen as, you know, the natural heir and all that kind of thing. But then his dad basically fired him and said, no, 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 you're not having my job. So Richard D. Zanuck basically thought, all right, then we'll fine, fuck you, then I'm going to destroy this <laughs> franchise for you. Um, and it was him who went in and said, let's just blow it up. Let's just blow up the whole planet. Let's be done with it. And that's how it sort of came. So depending on who, but either way, you know, key creative people were not wanting this franchise (laughs) to continue, which I think says a lot. But don't you just love it at the end? Because it's like, after he blows it up, there's no like, you know, know, there's no mushroom cloud or anything. It just goes to red and then to black. And then just a narration out of nowhere says, in one of the countless billions of galaxies in the universe lies a medium-sized star. And one of its satellites, a green and insignificant planet, is now dead. (laughs) <laughs> and that's it. Credits roll, and that's it. Could you imagine? Like these were still family films. Like they were still like you know marketing stuff to kids. And then you have at a time, and this is at a time when children were being taught in school how to duck and cover if if they saw an atomic blast. It's like this was a very real threat that everybody felt. And they exactly. and it's just like oh, yeah, we'll just blow up the world. <laughs> and I think like you know like earlier on like when um, Doctor Zaius and a lot of the gorillas are going into the forbidden zone and the. Uh, mutant humans have like psychically set up these illusions to put off apes and there are some horrific signs it's like the scarecrows from the first film sort of come back but they're like live apes like hanging upside down on these crosses like screaming in pain there's fire there's a a, a statue of the lawgiver 
who is supposed to be their big religious idol, who's like, is he crying blood at one point? He like explodes and yeah, it's just blood, blood coming and out then, of his face. And then um, Nova dies. She comes back from the first film and dies. Um, Brent is shot in the head quite graphically. Like, <laughs> you see, blood is just everywhere. It's a real like depressing uh, third act, really, and and quite terrifying for children, I would imagine. And Zero and Cornelius are hardly in this one either. But they do have plenty to do in the next film. Yes, which is my favourite. Of the franchise? Yes. More than the first one? (laughs) Yes. But when I was coming to watch these, (laughs) I'd seen the original. I I knew I'd seen bits and pieces of other ones, and I sort of wasn't sure which one was which. But I was looking forward to this one, because this is like the Star Trek IV of Planet of the Apes. (laughs) This this one is... This is the only one of the classic sequels that comes close to being a a real film, really, isn't it? It's... Yeah, it does. It takes it in a completely different direction. It takes a, a whole new idea, but it's still somehow true to the kind of mentality of the the very nihilistic mentality of uh, the the franchise. Oh yeah, certainly in the last like twenty minutes or so. Yeah. But the first hour is practically a comedy. Oh, and to yeah, be honest, I was it's hoping not like, for more yeah, comedy, to be honest. <laughs> that's it. I think it would work better if they'd really embrace that fully. Mm. I don't know. I I. I like the level of comedy but didn't it just make you think of like this is something that like we would pitch on this oh absolutely like the 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 planet has been destroyed so how do you continue the franchise on oh well zero and cornelius and some other guy some other (laughs) ape like got charlton heston's ship somehow figured out how it worked and made it launch off go back in time and go back in time and uh land in um on earth in 1973 (laughs) I just couldn't believe what I was reading about it. I didn't quite believe this film was going to be apes go back in time to the present day until I actually sat down and watched it, and it was. And It does make you wonder like, how desperate 20th Century Fox were for money around this point. I mean, it's famous yeah. that they had... I mean, basically, Planet of the Apes was a lifeline for them because they'd like bet on all these huge, big-budget, lavish, like Hello, Dolly and Doctor Doolittle and all these huge musical things that were flops because audiences oh, went they? off those in the late 60s. Yeah, at the time, they didn't make much money at all. In fact, some of the some of the sets for Hello, Dolly were redressed for Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, but you know, churning out like it was literally at this point it was like one ape sequel a year, and they were cutting the budgets back more and more. And I mean, that's another good reason to have the apes in modern day on modern day Earth yeah. because you can cut the budget right back. That's true. That is very true. So it's basically the uh, Cornelius and Zero and a third ape land on Earth, and then they um, the third ape is quickly killed. Yeah, completely pointless. Uh, even mm. like the fact that his death doesn't even create enough of a drama or grief to make it relevant it, it seems completely pointless mm. and it's salminio as well which i don't, I don't know why he was it's doing curious that. isn't it <laughs> like, I, yeah i appreciate it's... his career had sort of gone down the peak a bit but <laughs> the only reason i could think that he would be in it is like he was a blacklisted actor wasn't he in hollywood you know with the whole um mccarthy was he? communist sure. thing oh i thought he well i know that kim hunter certainly was and this was a bit of a career resurgence for her, so I, the only reason I could think is that, oh, maybe she was mates with him because they were both on the blacklist being <laughs> communists in Hollywood. Hanging out at the Communist Party. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's curious, isn't it? Because they have him there, he, he delivers some exposition, and I think he's only there because we have to believe that one of these apes knew something about sort of 
<laughs> engineering, yeah. Um, yeah. or you know how to build a build and pilot a spaceship. Because Cornelius is an archaeologist, and Zira is what is Zira? She's a scientist, but she's, she's not a psychologist, a... an animal psychologist. Psychologist. Mm. But yeah, I, I, but most of the film is just a, quite a delightful jaunt with Cornelius and Zira becoming like celebrities. I like all that. It's when it, love it shifts gear into trying to have a proper plot that I kind of lose interest in. It, to be <laughs> oh, honest. I like I wish, that too. I wish it had just stayed like they're celebrities. They they live happily ever after the end. <laughs> or they're celebrities, and then you know one of them gets a bit you know into drugs and that sort of yeah, thing. Cool. <laughs> Cornelius starts having an affair with a model. Some some sort of nihilistic, <laughs> like, f- destroy the franchise again ending would have been a nice continuation of the theme. But... <laughs> well, I suppose they do both die, actually, don't they? Thinking yeah. About it. Well, I mean, they, they have a baby, and yeah. uh, then there's uh, an evil doctor, German-Russian man, <laughs> who is... Uh, yeah. Oh, by the way! Well, he's after the baby, and then they they go on the run from him. But, Sol, I want you to explain something to me, because I know you're very good with time travel. Because <laughs> okay. how they explain time travel in this film is sort of beyond my understanding. This doctor, this evil doctor guy, he talks yeah. about time is like an infinite painting, where a painter is painting a landscape, and then the painter realises that that picture is not complete without a picture of him painting it. So he paints himself painting the picture of the landscape. And then he realises that he must further paint himself, painting himself, painting the landscape. And then he describes time travel as an infinite infinite number of painters painting themselves, painting a landscape. I don't understand it. (laughs) What does that mean? I don't think it makes any real sense, (laughs) unless he's trying to... Unless he's trying to allude to multiverse theory, which I don't think has anything to do with this film or to, like yeah. whatsoever. From what I remember, they just hit a time portal or something, don't they? Some nonsense yeah. like that. Supposedly the the first film is the classic, you know, you, you travel at a different speed of, you know... As you approach the speed of light. Else you, yeah, relativity. Yeah, yeah. So the first film's just relativity in action, and they've gone away from, you know, they, they've managed to travel thousands of years into the future relative to where they started. Mm. Um, but as far as I remember, this one's just, they like... There's no function to go backwards in that theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. If apes went back in time, does that mean that yeah. we're still going to get to a point where Charlton Heston blows up Earth? Two thousand years down the line, or is this a separate? Is that not going to happen in this current? You know, I I don't know. No, this whole film creates a time paradox because they come back, have this baby, which then starts the ape uprising, which Very has true, led to yeah. the civilization in which they are born. Yeah, but at the same time, maybe that didn't happen because when because Charlton Heston set, set off in his spaceship a year before Cornelius and Zira arrived so he's still off out in space somewhere by the time they get to earth it's very easy to read it as a a case of time correcting itself rather than it being fatal Ah. fated to have happened from the start you can read it either way quite easily Mm. interesting Because the, the third one kind of, it does turn into, it turns very dark and Zira's had her baby and her and Cornelius are on the run from the law because they want to abort the baby, basically. And the the guy who's after them, like the main bad guy, it's not, it's never 
quite clear why he's so fanatically murderous towards them. It's, and like everyone around, yeah, everyone accent, around him is, is kind of like going, well, they seem all right. And then he's like, no, well, they have to be killed. <laughs> <laughs> they all say, well, if what you're saying is true, then you being here is going to lead to the downfall of mankind. And therefore, is that not the, the idea? Yeah, yeah, that's the idea. So if we get rid of you, we think we can prevent, like, alter the timeline, They don't really want to get rid of them at first. They just don't want to have the baby. Yeah. But then when Cornelius accidentally kills, he kills a man and they go on the run. And that's when they're like, okay, yeah, we need to apprehend them. But even then, they only want to apprehend them. It's this Dr. Otto who is, like, actually, like, going out with a gun, like, I must kill them. But fortunately, Ricardo Montalban is there running a circus, and uh, they. Oh yeah, and then we're we're treated to some uh, classic um, animal magic. Oh, uh, yes, the very end of the, <laughs> footage. Yeah. Footage yeah. being reversed and then played repeatedly to because they switch give the, the illusion of speech. They switch the baby that Zira has with <laughs> just a, a regular chimp at the at Ricardo Montalban's circus, so he keeps the intelligent ape. And then the last shot of the film is a very clunky, you know, reversed and then forwarded footage of an ape opening its mouth with. <laughs> mama, mama, but they don't just do it once; they do it about like ten times, and yeah. it just really makes it like the camera's moving at the same time, so it's yeah. not quite. It's pretty poor, but um, they do it as if it's some big reveal as well. Like, oh my god, yeah. they switch it is like it was so apparent, <laughs> like yeah, that was going to happen. Yeah. I think it's played as a yep, that's the uh, the end of humanity kind of like dark mm. twist, like just confirming that yeah, this ape is gonna set everything in motion just as uh, people feared. Isn't that weird though that like even at this point they didn't think like you know what well, maybe we <laughs> should true. this is this could be quite a popular crowd pleasing, you know, uh thing. Maybe we should, you know, lighten it up a bit. Because I mean certainly the first half of the film is that, but they can't help themselves. They resort back to I mean this. you literally see mm. a baby chimp being shot and then thrown yes. into a river. along with along with the lovely ape characters you've liked for two films already like (laughs) shot and then die in each other's arms but uh but they're what make it for me i think roddy mcdowell and kim hunter in this film are brilliant especially kim hunter like there's that lovely bit at the start of the film where the scientists are like testing you know how intelligent are they and that kind of thing and they have zero doing these tasks and she's just sat there very like you know methodically doing them all and, you know, these brain teasers and whatever. And there's a lovely moment where she, like, turns and winks at uh, Roddy McDowell. <laughs> it's so sweet. I think she's I think she's brilliant in this film. Would you guys agree that that's sort of the last film where it feels like anyone was trying? No, I think they're trying with Conquest. I think there's a really? lot of good stuff in this film. Yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 again, it kind of takes it in a completely different uh, way, a different direction again. It's a good it's a good concept for a sequel. It's kind of the inevitable outcome of the last film and what mm. everyone's been waiting to see for a while, but I don't think it's done very well. Cuz here it's a little um the little kid that Zira and Cornelius had has grown up and Ricardo Montalban comes back. Apes are pets as well as sort of like they do menial jobs and things. Uh But yeah, Roddy McDowell comes back to play Caesar. And the interesting thing about this film is that you see, like, the society with the apes becoming part of it, and then you see the whole revolution, basically. The problem yes. with it is, it all just happens a bit too quickly, it's not well set up. Yeah. And in mm. fact, mm. what I noticed about these films, actually, which was something of a blessing, to be honest, is like they're all like a 
82 minutes long. Like they are short yeah. films. And to be honest, like not much happens in them even then. But in this yeah. film, it's like this film felt like there was a, a 30 minute section in the middle missing where he gets yes. all the apes on his side and like they suddenly understand yeah. him and they respect him as a leader. Mm. Uh, and mm. like he, he seems to just go up to them and sort of nod and then they commit seditious acts <laughs> it's like yes. i don't know where that came from <laughs> but the build-up to that i think is really good like caesar um i guess it's like the first time he's been sort of taken around out in a city society he's like flyering with ricardo montalban for the circus and he sees an ape being mistreated and he shouts lousy human bastards and then the officials go over and it's like who said that? And then Ricardo Montalban is like, oh yes, I said that. And they're like, no, you didn't say that. Like, I, I love that they pick him up on his <laughs> they, accent. They it's make like, him say it. He's lousy human bastards. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, no, of course you didn't say that. Um, because there is still rumour that there is this chimpanzee out there that could be the son of the two intelligent ones. But anyway, Caesar flees and then um, Ricardo Montalban is captured and then he's like mistreated for quite a while it's not like he's immediately um tortured and then let go like they sort of detain him for quite a while in a very sinister sort of way which i find quite scary and then eventually he (laughs) kills himself he throws himself out a window um so then there's this the main bad guy in this is governor breck the main politician administrator of this area Really liked him as a villain. Oh, I have a question, actually. When you two watched the film, did you see the theatrical version or the uh, unrated version? The director's cut, it might, I believe it's called. Did it end with all the apes beating Governor Breck to death? No, in, in my one, they, they let, he lets him live, yeah. You watched the theatrical cut, then I watched the director's version where they beat the governor to death. Basically, it was a classic thing that they tested it and then audiences didn't like this incredibly dark ending where Caesar basically facilitates the downfall of humanity and it ends with the apes going crazy, beating people <laughs> to death. Um, so so they like hastily, re-record- they hastily recorded another voiceover with uh, Roddy McDowell. Because um, he has this speech and he's like, we shall rise up, we shall build our own cities, blah, 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 blah. And then he's like, yeah, blah. And then they're about to beat the guy and then he's like, but wait a minute, we're not going to do it yet, because that would be very bad of us. But I do I do prefer the director's cut much more. I think it stays more true mm. to the... I don't know, in the theatrical one when he's like, no, we're not going to mm. kill but these humans. But then he humans. also, at the end there, when he's doing that speech, he basically... He says it'll be God's will who the sort of dominant species is. Or something like that. He brings God back into it. Which again was like a weird... like yeah. There'd been nothing about that in the film. It wasn't about that. And then suddenly he's yeah. mentioning God. And it's like, what? I've got it here. Um, destiny is the will of God. And if it is man's destiny to be dominated, it is God's will that he be dominated with compassion and understanding. So cast out your well, vengeance. It, is that God's will? Like, oh, he's just okay. decided that that's God's will. It doesn't, it, even the, yeah, exactly. Even if it you makes believe no sense. in God, the context of the speech doesn't make sense. To be honest, like mm. he's an ape from outer space. I wouldn't be surprised if he like has developed a complex and believes that he <laughs> himself is God. And he is just referring to himself in the third person, saying, This is my will. It it will be Maybe. it will be done. It's it's interesting this franchise, isn't it? For a for a series where the first film has such a strong ending, they they really struggle to like stick the landing in the uh <laughs> In the subsequent films, like all of the other ones have got really kind of muddled, hastily re-edited, thrown together endings that just don't quite... I don't know, I'm, I'm very happy with the blow up the world ending, I think that's... <laughs> really, 
I'm not a big fan of any of the sequels in the franchise. Like, they've got their moments, they've got their nice little, you know, ideas here and there. They're, you know, fairly watchable, I suppose. But I feel like Battle is the real outlier in the franchise in that this film is a piece of shit. (laughs) Like, start (laughs) to finish. I didn't mind it as much. I uh, Oh, God. I I, I liked it better than the second one, for example. It's a load of people in in shit rubber masks just in a field. It's like you just it's like you've gone to a yeah. a, a war reenactment at like a local fair. I mean, I don't think the makeup is uh, I mean, it's worse than the other ones it, certainly. It feels much not... more like a TV episode than a film. Yes. And it's about the same length as a TV episode. And I think the budget is the real reason as to why this is because yeah if you want to do battle for the planet of the apes yeah. that's a big deal i love it when the, the humans are going to battle the apes and it's like they've got you know they're like we're going to do an all-out assault and all this kind of stuff and it's basically a school bus two motorbikes and 20 people <laughs> if that and it's not even filmed in yeah. a way it's like come on like at least try and frame it like try to do something with the numbers yeah. that you have and they just don't even try doing that it just it isn't even the actual definitive ending to the series it wants to be, though. Because it it, it also just no. ends with, oh, they make peace, and look, we're getting along, and oh, maybe it'll go wrong in a few uh, hundred years' time, but no, everyone's living in peace and harmony now. Obviously, you know, everyone who has seen the <laughs> earlier films knows exactly what happens, and have some fucking balls. Stick to your guns. Like, this franchise, we know how this franchise ends. We know it's bleak. Like, do it properly. Kill Batman off. Mm. Don't have him turning up in Paris <laughs> and Alfred's there. <laughs> well, I think this is the, this is the certainly the most kid friendly of the entire uh, original franchise. I would say mm. it feels like there are very clear studio decisions being made. Of okay, we need to set up this TV series that we've got planned, so we're just going to end the film series here, and that's it. The only thing that I can point at that is still sort of bleak is that. The kid dies. Um, Caesar has a son who is um, killed about halfway through, which must have been sort of upsetting for children, perhaps. But uh, well, I think yeah. w- one thing I I liked about this is you start to see the infighting between the between the different species of apes, which I I find quite interesting. Mm. And but I liked I liked the kind of concept of oh yeah, apes and humans working together, and then but then the humans are kind of their servants to them, and then. They have to question all that. I liked it. It kind of came full circle. I, I don't know. It, it felt like it was trying to do something at least. You know, eh, they all are, aren't they? But it's just a, it's just a cheap one. That's all. Yeah, yeah. It, it it is very very cheap. And just I was supposed to expect the cities have completely fallen <laughs> in like what ten years. Like the whole planet is now. The other, this... My other problem with that is in ten years, all these apes have learned how to speak, and we and we even <laughs> know that the reason Caesar can speak is because of this. He's from the future. He's not a normal He's ape. He's a different species <laughs> yeah. altogether. He's he, a completely yeah. different animal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't. How the others would have learned, even even if they, you know, the intellect to learn, it doesn't make any sense at all. Am I right in thinking the idea is that he breeds with the apes and produces super intelligent kids, and they kind of. Yeah, well, he had, seed his intelligence. That's the um, the long form story. Yeah, that's the idea. Yeah, which obviously doesn't work on a ten year framework for this particular film. No. That, that is kind no. of the basic idea, isn't it? Yeah, 
Mm. But he has one kid and it dies. So he must have to mm. just breed a lot before he dies. Yeah, they? but mate, you, know, you don't know how many kids his, his kid might have got loads of apes pregnant. But the kid's about eight years old. Mm. Like even yeah, but eight, when when do apes hit puberty? About eleven. It's just not. That's a point. Yeah, about 11. Fair enough. He was an early you know, an early bloomer. <laughs> So yeah, after Battle for the Planet of the Apes, there was a Planet of the Apes TV series. Um, has anyone ever seen any of this? No. I would love to see it, but uh, it's not readily available, is it? I think it came out on DVD at some point, but it's probably just not. I don't, actually, no, I think on the DVD it was like, you know when they edit episodes together? And so you're not actually watching episode by episode, you're actually watching like three episodes that have been bundled yeah. together and then were sort of like... Oh, this is all one story, and it's yeah. really not. Uh, from what I'm, from what I can tell, it's not a direct sequel. It sort of exists like Planet of the Apes sort of happened, if you can vaguely sort of remember what happened, but not quite the details. Right. Um, it's basically a couple of blokes crash land on the Planet of the Apes, and then they have adventures with their Roddy McDowell ape friend, and uh, yeah, and then Doctor Zaius is coming with a load of gorillas and be like, "Oh no, stop those humans from blah blah blah," and then they run away, and then. Next episode is the same thing. <laughs> what about the animated thing they did? Again, I've only seen clips. I've never seen a full episode. I mean, it's it's quite cheaply done animation, bearing in mind this is like early 70s. So um, when was Scooby-Doo going? Was 60s, Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay, yeah. then. Well, it looks cheaper than that. It's, it's very poorly animated, and it's, it's largely just sort of static images with just the mouths moving <laughs> and that sort of okay. thing. The stills I've looked look very similar to the Star Trek animated series, and that's yeah. very static yeah. as well. Anyway, that I mean, that, after that animated series, that was kind of it, really, for the franchise until the Tim Burton remake, which we'll get to in more detail next week. Right, shall we do some pictures then? Probably. Yeah, shall we? Yeah. yeah. So, we've all seen the episode of The Simpsons, where Troy McClure, is, who's an actor on the show, like gets a job in Planet of the Apes, the musical. I was so, wondering how long it would take us to get <laughs> to Zayas, Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas. <laughs> yeah, I've been waiting for that to <laughs> What's wrong with me? I think you're crazy. Want a second opinion? You're also lazy. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Do, 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 do. Anyway, yeah, so that's brilliant. And I have that song on my iPod. And it's great. And can I play so, the piano anymore? Of course you can. Well, I couldn't before. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. So um, basically, I just want to—I want to do a full Broadway musical or West End musical, I should say, really, of Planet of the Apes. So I want to do a musical. I want to get Alf Clausen, who is the Simpsons oh. composer, to come in and write the songs because we're yeah, going to use those very, two songs. He's a very underrated um, musician, I think. Alf yeah. Clausen. Some of the music in those—the themes he comes up with for like Mr. Burns and, and oh, stuff. it's wonderful. It's yeah, really good. And I—I I think it's—it's it's to a massive detriment, really, in the the movie that they didn't bring him on as the composer and just got Hans Zimmer to do it because it, it, the music's yeah. like such a big part of why the show works. Okay. Let me get to my thing because I've got I've got um I've got, we're going to use those two songs from The Simpsons, but I've got other places for songs in here as well. And the narrative I'm going to tweak a bit from the film, but we start out the musical starts out with we all know the Twister is apes on the planet now, so we don't need to have that as a big reveal, and we need a big musical number to set the stage. So we're going to open on the Planet of the Apes itself, 
Um, and we're going to have a catchy musical number to set the scene, you know, lay of the land and all that kind of thing. And then it's going to end with all the apes, like, pointing upwards. And then from above, there's going to be a spaceship prop come down. And uh, we're going to have our lead actor sat in that. Get, get over this stuff quite quickly. We don't need all the time of them wandering around. You see the mute humans, and we have our second musical number, which is called... In six months' time, we'll be running this place. <laughs> and it's a musical number that the three astronauts sing, and it's like, you know, in six months' time, we'll be running this place, we'll be kings, we'll this be... This is good. This is their moment of hubris before the apes turn up and they get... They exactly, get, yeah. yes. Yeah. So they'll be fantasizing about, oh, they'll be bringing us all this wonderful stuff, we won't have to lift a finger, it's all going to be great. Can and I, then, of course... The can I make a in. suggestion that the yes. the feral humans are, are like, you know, stomp? <laughs> yeah. No. They're like a percussion group, and they just, they oh. just like... They, they're the one that bangs the bin lids together and stuff. Oh! Oh! I think the right. feral humans should, like, because they, they don't speak or sing, but they can make music with all the, the this sticks is brilliant. and things good, yeah. lying around. You've given me an idea there for later, Sol. <laughs> but in the meantime, the, uh, the gorilla comes in, and um, and kill one of the guys and take the other two prisoner. We have some fun on stage here with like people running around and stuff. And Taylor is rendered mute, just like in the film. And here's where we get another song to introduce us to Zira and Cornelius. Does she does she call him Bright Eyes? Yes. Bright eyes burning like oh. fire. Brilliant. Yeah, we can use that. A guest appearance for Art Garfunkel. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't decided what Zero and Cornelius' song should be called, but um, yeah, Zero to Hero. <laughs> oh, um, yes, perfect. Yep, that's it. And uh, so then Taylor escapes, did more chasey stuff, um, and then we have the Doctor Zayas, Doctor Zayas number, um, when Taylor finally speaks. I can sing. <laughs> Get your paws off me, you dirty ape. He can talk, 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 he can talk. I can sing. <laughs> Ooh, help me, Dr. Zayas. And that's, yeah, that's it. Anyway, and then we have a tender song with Taylor and Nova in the cage together about lovely song. But that we, from that, we quickly shift well, into the next actually, song, which is a... As Nova doesn't speak, all her actions could be done through interpretive dance. So you get oh, like a high-profile dancer in there. There we go. Yeah. Sid Charisse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the high-profile dancer I know one who's still alive maybe <laughs> <laughs> anyway Taylor's apprehended again of course and we have a tender song with just him and Nova in the cage Nova's doing interpretive dance but after that we quickly shift into the next song which is a big metal track called Madhouse <laughs> and it's going to be a big like huge, I don't think big... that should be a song that should that should be just a dance number like in Footloose when <laughs> yeah, it just yeah, goes yeah. mad um, like. we can, we can... We can have lots of water because they're hosing him down, so we can have a lot of water effects and stuff. It's going to be great. That's where your stomp comes in. That's 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 where you, yeah. that's where that really pay off. That's it. Yeah. Or like Billy Elliot, the musical has a sequence like that as well. He goes out to the riots and it's just footloose mm. and it's just yeah. <laughs> anyway, Taylor is broken out of um, his cage by his eight friends and they travel to the Forbidden Zone, which is the title of our next number. Now during that's a this song. number, you can you can license the Forbidden Song by Danny Elfman. And- Living in the sixth dimension, things get tough. Oh, oh, I didn't know. Oh, God, all these songs already exist. I've got no chance. A guy like me just can't make a Broadway musical based on someone else's intellectual property and get away with it. Uh, so, Taylor, uh, we have our Forbidden Zone musical number. Uh, but during this number, we're going to see mutants popping up and around because we're actually going to insert a bit of Beneath the Planet of the Apes in here. Uh. 
uh, to pad out the running time. Um, but Taylor and Co. don't see them just yet. This is just, uh, this is, we act, end Act 1 here. And this is a bit of a, oh, come back for more because these mutants are going to do something. This is where the Blue Man group can come in, Saul. <laughs> they can be the mutants. Um, what and then, what so are the Blue one, Man group? I don't understand what they are. I don't really know what they, they are They either. bang some drums, they're painted blue. Like, What more do you want? What, what, what are they? Are they are they musicians? Like, yeah, this is are they, a percussion show. Do they release albums? <laughs> I know they, 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 they've they got like a residency <laughs> in Vegas, right? Is that them and Penn and Teller are like mates with each other? Penn would make a great gorilla, a big gorilla, and Teller oh, yes. as a mute human. Yes! <laughs> Brilliant! Okay, yeah, this isn't Broadway anymore. We're going to <laughs> Vegas. So this is the end of um, Act One. Now, start of Act Two. I want, um, I want to start this act with um, a song from just Dr. Zaius himself. Um, it's very much from his perspective, he only wants to do right by his people and such. It's going to be called, Hear No, See No, Speak No. <laughs> it's, going to be, it's going to be his thing. Then he and his guerrilla comrades leave to find Taylor and co, um, finding them at the cave where they discover the remnants of the human occupiers. Um, and we have a slow, tender number where Taylor is piecing together all the bits of evidence that he's found. Um, this is where we borrow from beneath the planet of the apes as the mutants appear and kidnap Taylor, Nova, Zira, Cornelius, and Dr. Zaius. These mutants, I want them to look less human because we don't want to spoil the uh, the surprise for Taylor just yet. So this is where the Blue Man group would be perfect because <laughs> um, they, they look more alien than human. So that's brilliant. And then we'll repeat some of the same beats from Beneath the Planet of the Apes with, you know, um, stuff going down, uh, mutants, and they've got a, a bomb and all that kind of stuff. But when the bomb is revealed, I want the bomb sex to be revealed. Sex bomb, sex bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, brilliant. Okay, we can do that. What I was going to say is that I wanted it to be revealed along with the Statue of Liberty. So that, um, you know, Taylor has his big, oh my ah. god, moment at the same time as they see the bomb. Yeah. And then there's going to be a big fight sequence here. And um, I hadn't thought much about an ending musical number, but I think Sex Bomb could well be the, <laughs> the best thing to go for. Could you have the Statue of Liberty, like, comes to life and does a big number? Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I love that. And then I think I think I want the um, the Simpsons song. Oh my God, I was wrong. It was Earth all along. <laughs> I, I, you, you know, I, I'd, yeah. I'd like that at the end with "I love you, Doctor Zaius." <laughs> but then if we could somehow twist that and have him blow up the planet as well, <laughs> that'd be really ideal as a good way to end it. Um, it's a way, it's a really good way to like we saw this with um, a- Alien versus Predator Requiem, didn't we? Where it's just like if you just write yourself into a corner, <laughs> you just blow everything up and it's it's fine. Yeah. Um, anyway, and then the, so the, so I want to blow it all up so that the um, the show will end with a spectacular, you know, fireworks and light show and all this kind of stuff. It'll dazzle the audience. <laughs> And that, that's my pitch. That's what I want to do. I want to do Planet of the Apes, the Broadway musical. Las Vegas musical. Las Vegas. <laughs> and Fantastic, and yeah. uh, what, what's it called? Are you naming it after that show in The Simpsons? Oh, uh, what's it called? It's called Stop the Planet of the Apes, I Want to Get Off. Oh, that's it, yeah. Which is a reference to a similarly titled musical. I just wanted to call it Planet of the Apes, semicolon, the Broadway musical. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, uh, out of all the uh, pitches we've ever had in the show, that might be the one I'd enjoy the most. Um, <laughs> if, if you could get Alf Clausen especially to come and do it. If he'd be willing. Simpsons nostalgia, that's a big market these days. I think mm. people people might go for that. Okay, so what have you got for us? I suppose this is set shortly after the, the wraparound at the end. Ape and human tensions are heightened uh, due to the job market, and uh, <laughs> a family of apes are left with no prospects, so they, they pack up and embark on a trip along Highway 66 in order to make their way towards California on the search for employment. The most elder ape, Nero, is dies this, um, along the way. Is this... No, 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 uh, I was just going to guess the title, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't ruin my title. <laughs> I don't know where this is going. <laughs> okay, go on. <laughs> the most elder ape, Nero. Uh, he dies along the way. They meet an ape travelling in the opposite direction while stopping off at a place for the night, and he laughs at their optimism, speaking bitterly, disappointed of his experience on the West Coast. And they, they arrive at a, a work camp, and it's crowded. Uh, everyone's starving and jobless and desperate, and it's run by dirty human agitators. So they move on and make their way to another camp. This camp has menial work available, but after toiling in the fields, they discover how high the prices are at the uh, company store, just for basic commodities, food, water, and what have you. Uh, they find that some apes are going on strike. They go to a secret meeting to learn more. Once there, they're discovered by camp guards, and one of the camp apes... guards. They like, oh hello, Mr. <laughs> hello, ape. hello, hello okay, Camp yeah. David. Oh, hello, Alan. <laughs> Oh, oh dear. Yeah, they're, they're discovered by where are they really? By some very camp guards, and uh, <laughs> and one of the apes is <laughs> one of the apes is killed by dirty a dirty human guard. And as the the lead ape tries to defend him, he inadvertently kills the the human, uh, receiving a serious <gasps> facial wound in the process. And the guards realize that it'll be easy to identify him. And an all-out ape and human war is now like on the brink. So they they sneak him out of the camp and they continue driving, and their car breaks down. But they're able to hmm. coast it down the hill where a third camp exists. Uh, this one's for farm workers, run by the Department of Agriculture, complete with indoor toilets, showers, luxuries that all the baby child apes have never even seen. They're just used to, like, shitting in the hands and throwing it at people. (laughs) (laughs) And the lead ape, Tiberius, is moved to work for change due to uh, the things that he's witnessed. He, He vows to become a social justice warrior. He goes on about how he'll be everywhere. Whenever there's a cop beating up an ape, he'll be there, etc., and that, that sets the stage for, for the sequels further along the line. Um, <laughs> now, Alan, you can you can do the title if you want. Uh, Apes of Wrath? <laughs> yeah, it's not quite. <laughs> it's, it's Planet of the Apes of Wrath. <laughs> <laughs> ah, very good, very good. That's, that's a bit of highbrow joke. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, what about you, Alan? What's... Um... What about what's your, um what's your sequel? What's eating Gilbert Ape? <laughs> <laughs> don't think I didn't don't think I didn't no. consider that. <laughs> I'm trying to think of other 
it's, it's hard, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> That's the only other one I could I could think uh, of. So my pitch. Okay, I want to go full comedy because we're five films in now. It's time to just pull the rug out. Uh, mm. Basically, what I'm doing is uh, films like Meet the Fockers. This is a, a direct progression of of the other films. Uh, so you've got Caesar and his wife is called Lisa, I think. So you've got Caesar and Lisa. There is this is a, they're a little older. They're retired from this sort of political life, but still, you know, respected mm. in the community. They're still major sort of players. Now they've got a daughter. She's gone away to college, chimp college, whatever. She's got herself a boyfriend, <laughs> and they Ooh. they plan to get married. And so, so basically, the film is that the in laws are coming together to meet for the first time in preparation for this marriage. It's your, your, cl- your classic setup. Can this be called "Guess Who's Coming to the Planet of the Apes"? <laughs> well, I was that's it. I was gonna do "Guess Who's Coming to Dinner" first, and then I kind of went. I thought it'd be better if it's funny. So. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's got all those ideas, yes. But basically, the, the trick of it is, you know, this chimp family, the, the daughter, she brings the boyfriend back, and he is a bonobo. Oh. oh. The bonobos are curiously absent from Planet of the Apes, because they're quite similar to chimpanzees, basically. So I think that's mostly why, but... It's because they're always shagging, isn't it? They're, they make love, not war. You wouldn't have a franchise. They wouldn't be fighting the humans. Oh, They'd yeah, be shagging them. Yeah. <laughs> are they really? Is that what the... Well, this is it. Yeah, right. Basically, chimpanzees, they're a male-dominated society. They've got the alpha male at the top of the hierarchy, all that sort of thing. Bonobos have a female-dominated society, and they basically just oh. fuck for any reason. Like, they... It's like shaking hands is like sucking each other off. It's, that's, it's like a basic <laughs> social contact. It's sexual. Uh, and so the females... They just have sex with all the males. And so there's no kind of sense of fatherhood because they don't know who, you know, inseminated for specific op- offspring. Right. Hmm. And so, Interesting. And so, yeah, the, the females, bonobos, they kind of raise the children as a sort of female group. And then female adolescents, they go off to find other tribes and other mates and stuff. But the, the male offspring have a really strong bond with the mother and sort of stay, they stay close, like, for life. And so that's what we're going to play on here. This boyfriend turns up. His mother is like domineering mother and like with some guy in tow, like whoever her latest shag is. But like, I want to play them up like they're real hippies. They're real kind of a totally different culture, a different society. And so that's where you get your clash and the, the hilarity ensues, right? <laughs> but she can also be like, she, she can be going at Caesar, trying to shag him. <laughs> Well, that's it. I think the, the the comedy will come from Caesar is like this. He, he's supposed to be this great liberal kind of overlord of, of ape life and ape culture. And so he's doing his best to accommodate that. Oh, yeah, they're different to us, but we're all the same. Ape loves ape. And, we, and he's trying his best to accommodate them, but they keep pushing him and pushing him until he sort of finally goes over the edge and goes mad. And I think the culmination should be when you know, the bonobo mother, she invites all her friends around for a, like a big lesbian orgy because that's <laughs> also something they do. <laughs> and he walks in on them and they... But basically, bonobo is fantastic and it just seems like they would be a much better film, a more interesting film. Can the neighbour be a mandrill? And the bonobo looks at the mandrill's nose and she's like, oh. Trying to think, what are the kind of primates there? That's... Well, in terms of proper apes, you've got, well, humans... Two types of gorilla, one type of chimpanzee, and then uh, bonobos, which are very similar, and then two types of or- hmm. two types of orangutan as well. 
Can the we have se- a monkey? The seven species. But, well, I don't know. Would they have monkeys as like pets? The monkeys learn to speak as well. I don't know. What what happens to monkeys in Planet of the Apes? They're never mentioned. Huh. It's an offensive. Um, it's offensive term. Yeah, they don't like to be called monkeys because it re- it's reductive. Well, yeah, because they're mm. not monkeys. Mm, exactly. Oh, what is a gibbon? A monkey. <laughs> that that the gibbons are brilliant. <laughs> no, 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 they're apes. They're apes. We can have a gibbon. Let's have a gibbon. They're the best. A funky gibbon. They're called lesser apes. Have you ever seen a gibbon running around with its arms up in the air? It's the best. Oh yes, it's the brilliant. best thing. Well, they're a bit creepy, really, aren't they? Because <laughs> they've got such long limbs. It's a bit. Hmm. According to Wikipedia, humans are apes. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> Isn't the planet of the apes already the planet of the apes? Then? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. No, I mean, we're all... Homo Homo sapien and. Uh... Hmm. Well, you might be, but I'm I'm straight up. <laughs> <laughs> How old is that joke? <laughs> they, they invented the term Homo sapien, and then about five minutes later. Chimpanzees are definitely the best looking of the apes, aren't they? They're the most friendly. What about Neanderthal? Can we have a Neanderthal in there? (laughs) They're not real anymore, are they? They're not real anymore. I mean, they're extinct. (laughs) Sorry, no. Sorry, they're extinct, aren't they? Yes. Sci-fi future. These are all new things. How does Michael Jackson's bubbles fit into this equation? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, how? We must know. It's the question that everyone was thinking, but was too afraid to ask. <laughs> Can you think of any other famous apes? Real life uh, apes, eh? Cheetah. Who's that? Oh, yeah. Which one's that? One in Tarzan. He lived to be a ripe old age, didn't he? Didn't he live to be like 90 years old or something? Yeah, they've got, they've got like human lifespans, pretty much. Chimps. The oldest gorilla died this year. It was 60, oh, no. I think. Oh, that's a gr- Coco. There yeah, you go. That's Coco, a Oh, uh, did Coco die? Yeah, in January. Oh, no. What happened, what happened to her cats? <laughs> Sorry, what? Um, they were buried alive with her <laughs> so that she could take them into the afterlife. What? Coco the gorilla Calvin. It, um, she was a big gorilla and she had some pet cats. She... Okay, fine. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. She was sad because she couldn't, like, bear children. And she... They, <laughs> she couldn't get a man. They... they <laughs> They have a, cra- a crazy chimpanzee cat lady. She's got. She had an Instagram account called Gorilla Cats. <laughs> She's one of those apes they like taught sign language to, and she could communicate a load of stuff. But all she said was, "I can has cheeseburger." <laughs> um, there's a there's like there's loads of, there's videos on YouTube of her like meeting Robin Williams and stuff. Go and look them up. <laughs> She's the one on the right. (laughs) (laughs) What's the name of the thing again? The 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 monkey. It's not a monkey. (laughs) She had a pet cat, and like the cat got out of the enclosure and got hit by a car, and she was really sad. And then she got like two more cats, and then there's a video here saying Coco the gorilla mourns her friend Robin Williams. Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah, they, they they said oh. they said Coco, Robin's dead, and and she went like sign language for sad, sad face. I think I think that's basically really like, pretty much. Yeah. I don't believe it. I'd have to see this. What, watch oh, them. They're, they're they're really this this great interesting footage. That gorilla. Coco. Are you sure that it's her, or was Doctor Penny Patterson really pulling the strings behind the <laughs> the scenes? Because I I'm very suspicious about Doctor Penny Patterson. <laughs> 
they it, it seems like they established that she had a concept of death because her cat died. Because Doctor Penny like told her to. Okay, so when the cameras are on you, do this, and I will give you a treat afterwards. She just, yeah, this woman, she just makes up what the signs mean. When she, she just waves her hands about <laughs> randomly, and she goes, "Yeah, she's sad. She wants a cat." <laughs> and the and the gorilla's just going, "Can I have some leaves, please? <laughs> some bananas? Can you release me?" It's not that weird, is it? Elephants mourn their dead. I mean, as long as you can like teach them to convey sad, happy. Mm. Have you, Calvin, have you not learned anything from these Planet of the Apes films? All right, we're supposed to feel <laughs> sympathetic towards them. These intelligent beasts, smarter than humans in that uh, in that first one, certainly. They take they take over. They win. They're they're the dominant species. <laughs> Some of the comments on this video. Someone commented, "Coco seems to have so many losses in her life." Yeah, a cat died. She's a gorilla. A cat died. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> she probably doesn't even know. She probably ate it. <laughs> I, I really don't feel like you've learned anything from this experience, Calvin. You're still the same old racist that you always were. <laughs> <laughs> They, they kill people, they rip people's faces off. I bet there's a load of faceless cats wandering around in LA. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, that's, you're, you're confusing chimps. And yeah, chimpanzees are pretty brutal, but uh, yeah, gorillas are pretty docile, unless you threaten their babies or something. <sighs> shall we? Well, shall we end? <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you for listening, we hope you enjoyed it, and come back next week for the more recent remakes of the Planet of the Apes franchise. In the meantime, you can access our entire back catalogue of episodes by going to dimreturns.com, as well as seeing our reviews and all the other extra bits that we put up. And if you go right now, then you can take part in our first listener vote and get to choose what film series we tackle in a future episode. Simply go to dimreturns.com and you'll find the poll right there on the front page. And if you don't like the options there, then by all means get in touch with us and let us know what film you'd like us to take on. Best place to do that is through our Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash Diminishing Returns Podcast. Follow us on there to get all the latest information and give us your opinions on all the things we talk about. See you next week. <laughs>